Well, how serious is sin, really? A generation ago, in 1986, People magazine ran a survey of its readers on the subject of sin. They published the results as a syndex, with each sin rated by a sin coefficient. What people perceived as the worst sins were ranked with a high number and the least serious sins were ranked with a low number. And so the high-ranking sins were kind of predictable, murder, rape, incest, child abuse, treason. Down the bottom in, uh, uh, were smoking, swearing, copying music, which I guess in 1986 would have been kind of copying cassette tapes, pirating, all that kind of thing. Um, cutting in front of someone in a queue was thought worse than capital punishment. And uh, then there was a telling quote. Overall, readers said they commit about 4.64 sins per month. (laughs) So nearly 35 years later, what would the woke generation say? Probably instinctively, people want to say, it's not about rules. You know, don't, don't give me rules, don't want rules. I want to get beyond kind of you must do this and you must not do that. And actually, when you think about it, though, you know, one set of rules has been relaxed, but there's a whole other set that's been put in its place, isn't there? So, thou shalt be true to yourself. Thou shalt not be intolerant. Thou shalt not question climate change. Thou shalt recycle. Thou shalt not spurn veganuary. Thou shalt not fail to be woke, which certainly doesn't uh, mean falling asleep during a sermon. I guess, like in 1986, however, most people would still be keen to downplay the sense of personal sin in our own life. You know, 4.64 sins per month or or maybe far less. Don't want to use that kind of word, people would probably say. Well, contrast that with the view of sin that we find here in James chapter 1. Remember, James is writing a letter that is about living a wholehearted Christian life. He writes as a servant of Christ, chapter 1, verse 1. He writes as one who wants to encourage his readers to serve Christ wholeheartedly and to persevere through trials, as we saw last week, right to the end of the Christian life and, um, and to do so, to arrive there rejoicing uh, and, and trusting in Jesus. But for James, perseverance to the end through trials and living a wholehearted, single-minded Christian life is all bound up with having a right and sober view of ourselves. So look at verse 19. He wants to talk about anger. Now, we all know about anger, don't we? But if you're anything like me, anger is generally something that we like to be able to explain away. Well, she makes me angry. I shouted because you provoked me. That guy winds me up so much. All my heckles go up. It's his fault that I get like this. These are the kinds of things that we tend to tell ourselves. But what does James say? He says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because anger doesn't get you anywhere with God. In other words, anger isn't something that you can explain away or blame someone else for. It's your problem, it's my problem. And he goes on, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Now, hang on a minute, that's all a bit extreme, isn't it? 
I mean, is that really a fair description of people like you and me? You know, the upright, respectable residents of North London and beyond? Well, it, it certainly seems a bit harsh if we subscribe to the 4.64 sins per month view of sin. But again and again, the Bible makes it clear, sin is not about individual specific actions where we do something wrong. Sin is about the very core of our being, that on the inside we are broken. Sin is a sickness, it's a heart problem. And things like anger may feel like old news compared to the woke sins of 2020, but actually anger is just as much a problem now as it has ever been, isn't it? Whether we're talking about our own personal lives, whether we're talking about the actions of entire nations as we you know, watch the news headlines even this week, Angus, right there, isn't it? And James says the problem is that our hearts are full of moral filth. The 20th century began with huge optimism that finally mankind would come of age with the development of new technology and new opportunity. It would throw off the shackles of the past and face a bright new future. But after the horrors of the First World War, when that became clear that that was unlikely to be the case. We then came to the Second World War and we came to the Holocaust. And and particularly shocking was the fact that at the the Nuremberg trials in 1947, the people who were on trial for their part in building and operating the gas chambers, they weren't all obviously monstrous people with terrible upbringings. There was a dentist... There was a professor, an opera singer, a Protestant church pastor, a teacher, a journalist. All people who have been leading apparently respectable lives for much of the 1920s and 30s, all of these went on trial for their part in the murder of six million Jews. Now, which view of human beings is more realistic. The one that says that we commit 4.64 sins per month or the one that describes our hearts as containing moral filth. Rather like a doctor making a diagnosis, we will never rightly receive the medicine of the Christian gospel, the forgiveness of sins, unless we're prepared to accept the full horror of the diagnosis. Otherwise, we'll try and take the wrong medicine. That is how James begins this challenging section with a deeply disturbing diagnosis. But by the end of the reading, he's he's speaking of human beings at their best, caring for the orphan and the widow. So how then do we get from one to the other? What hope is there for such broken human beings like us? Can anything be done about the moral filth, the sickness deep within us? Well, James has three things to say. First then, humbly accept the word. Humbly accept the word. In the, in the Old Testament in Jeremiah, God made a promise that one day he would deal with the problem of sin in his people by writing his law on their hearts. And that's what James is talking about here when he says humbly accept the word. Back in verse 18 he talked about being given new birth, a fresh start. That is what we so desperately need. We need new hearts that are unspoilt by sin, so that we no longer desire what is evil, but instead desire what is good from our hearts. And and when we come to Jesus and put our trust in him, 
That is what he does. He writes his word, he writes his law on our hearts so that we long to obey God rather than do our own thing. The power to change is not in ourselves. We cannot do this. We do not have the power. The power is in God and comes from God to us by his Holy Spirit when we trust in Jesus. The key word in verse 21, if you look, is humbly. Being humble is quite hard to talk about, isn't it, in, in one sense? You know, you can't write the book Humility and How I Achieved It. But being humble is the opposite of being proud. Pride leads to anger, which James has just described, the sense of outrage. How dare he speak to me like that? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't she understand what I've done for her? I don't deserve this. That's that's what we tend to say. Pride says, I'm the boss. The throne belongs to me, if you like. And if anyone challenges me to my place on the throne, I will fight them. But the problem is that the throne doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. So, humbly accept the word implanted in you which can save you. Let God reign in your heart. Now that can be hard to do. It's like maybe if you've you've got a car, like letting someone else drive your car. Am I the only one who finds it difficult to kind of let someone else do that? Particularly if I'm in it at the time. That's particularly difficult. Usually when I hand something over to someone else, you know, my, my fingers work in perfect harmony with my mind, and I'm able to smoothly place whatever it is in the hand of the other person. But my car keys seem to get stuck to my fingers somehow. Do, do you really have to drive my car? Just, just be careful, be careful. No, no, don't, don't press that button, don't do it like that. But if we feel like that, what are our motives? Well, with, with my car, it's a sense that this is my car, it belongs to me, I don't want anything bad to happen to it. I know best how to drive this. I'm the boss. And that is how we are with God and his words, do you see? Except that the difference is that unlike my car, I don't belong to me. And you don't belong to you. Do you see? This is what humbly accepting God's word means. Acknowledging before God that actually he's the boss, he's the owner, he's in charge, not me. So I need to listen to him in his word. It's hard to do that, but actually... That is where we become the people that God created us to be. That is the first step to dealing with the problem of sin, of anger, or whatever the particular symptom is. Humble ourselves before God, accept that he's the boss, humbly accept the word, which will point us to Jesus and to his death for us. And then James moves on and gets even more practical. When it comes to the word, don't just listen Do what it says. So secondly, do what it says. Verse 23, James has a contrast between two people who are looking. You see that? Then two people are looking, and uh, they're looking at the word which he says is like a mirror. And despite the way it's translated here, the difference between them isn't about how they look or whether or not they're looking intently. Both words for looking here have a sense of looking intently. The difference actually is about how they respond to what they see. So two people looking in the mirror. For one, it's 
early in the morning and a quick check in the mirror on the way out of the door and you're heading off to work and it reveals, the mirror reveals toothpaste dribbling down the chin, jam on the tie, hair uncombed, you can tell this isn't an autobiographical story. What does this person who has seen all these things in the mirror do? Absolutely nothing. He goes out into his day with toothpaste, jam, uncombed hair and doesn't care enough to do anything about it. That's like being someone who listens to the word but does not act. They've come to church, they've heard the sermons, they've read good Christian books, but actually it doesn't make any difference at all. When you look at their life and you compare it with the life of their atheist next-door neighbour or their atheist colleague who sits on the next desk at work, there isn't really a difference beyond what they do on Sundays or whatever it might be. The second person James talks about here, verse 25, they see the problem and they deal with it. They do what the word says. Now, remember, we need to do what the word says not because we need to prove our worth to God to earn his approval. We already have that if we're trusting in Jesus. He's already given us a new birth. He's already given us a fresh start. We've seen that already. But that fresh start is for a purpose. It's to enable us to have God deal with the mess in our hearts, the moral filth that James talks about. And so our responsibility in that is to listen to the word he's given us and to do what he says. The thing is, though, if all along we've got that low view of sin, that that low view of the problem that says, oh, it's 4.64 sins per month, it's not actually that serious. It's kind of one a week or occasionally two. If that's the case, then doing what God says is not going to be top of the priority list. Taking him seriously is not going to be the first thing on our minds. It's not going to be the thing that drives us, that comes to mind the first thing in the morning when we get out of bed. Because when it comes down to it, I don't really need to be rescued and I don't really need to change. We're going to find other things more attractive, more pressing. My, my greatest desire won't be to grow more like Jesus, it'll be something else. It'll be my career or my family or my education or whatever it is. None of those things are bad in themselves, but all of them can take the place of God in our lives if we let them. Maybe that's why in, in this generation now, all the focus is put on things that from God's point of view are not actually all that serious or may even themselves be against God's good ordering of his world. Because if we can confine the problems to things we think we might be able to do something about, you know, if we all pull together to solve climate change or whatever it might be, then, well, we don't need God and we can carry on as we are. Not to say that things like climate change aren't important, but it's easy to make those the things that we must address in order to avoid dealing with the real problem between us and our creator. Several times in this chapter, twice in this passage, James says, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived about what really matters. The real problem is in our hearts. And the only solution is to humble ourselves before God and do what he says. But look at what James then says is possible. Thirdly, live a changed life. Live a changed life. Imagine a life 
where you keep a tight rein on your tongue, where every, every word that leaves your mouth is kind and loving and builds other people up rather than tears them down. Again, that's the opposite of pride that comes so naturally to us. Imagine a life where our first concern is for those in the greatest need and distress, for the widow, the orphan. Of course, in James's time, those were the people who were most helpless and utterly reliant on others. Today, it might look a bit different, but it's the outcast, the one nobody notices, the one you can get away with ignoring because no one else is going to say anything, no one else is going to care. It's the outsider, the, the, the lost, the, the friend or family member who does not know Jesus. Imagine a life where our first thought isn't, how do I blend in? How do I get people to like me? How do I keep up with the latest trends? But instead, how do I ensure I can live in the world but not of it? Being in the world, not being polluted by it, as James puts it in verse 27. What is going to give us that kind of desire for holiness for love it will only come when we understand how extraordinary it is for God to have paid the penalty for our sin through Jesus's death on the cross in order to give us a fresh start the new birth that James points to back in verse 18 in the reading from Luke we heard how the Pharisees watched this sinful woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears and with perfume and the Pharisees say, how can you possibly allow this to happen? Don't you know who this woman is? She's a sinner, she's the worst kind. You shouldn't be associated with her, Jesus. And we heard Jesus' response, the one who is forgiven much loves much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. What is going to give us the motivation to work at our holiness, the motivation to change our speech from bitter to sweet, to respond to challenges not with anger but with humility, to treat the the stranger and the outsider with the same love that we treat our closest loved ones, to keep ourselves distinct from the world around us rather than just going with the crowd and blending in. What is going to give us that motivation? It will only be when we understand what it means to have been saved at the cross of Jesus, that he died not just for 4.64 sins per month, but for sinners whose hearts are full of moral filth. That he knew exactly what we are truly like, what really goes on in our hearts. He knew all of that and he died for us in order to plant his word in us and change us. So here's something to reflect on this week. Is our natural inclination in the face of our sin to to minimise it or to confess it? Is it to argue about what counts as sin and what doesn't or is it to humble ourselves before God and come back to Jesus and the gospel? Is it to think, I'm not that bad really or is it to praise God for giving us the saviour that we really need? In the gospel, God says, I know exactly what you're like. You can be totally honest with me. You don't have to hide. You don't have to play down your sin. And I love you anyway. I sent Jesus to die for you so you can change. When we understand how much we have been forgiven, how much we have been loved, only then will we begin to be able to show the same kind of love to others. In such a way that we then start to live out the kind of community that is attractive to a watching world. A world that gets lost and and doesn't know what to focus on. And we can model a, a love for one another that is 
counter-cultural and unexpected. So we began with that picture of moral filth. We end with this vision of what the Christian life could look like. Love for the outsider. Love for the lowest of the low. How do we get there? By humbly accepting the word, humbly accepting that God is the boss, that we need his help, his rescue. We need to do that individually. We need to do that as a church. And then not just pretending to listen, but actually doing what he says. So let's pray now. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Father, we pray that this week our lives would be marked by humility. By humbly accepting your word in our lives. By living this out at work, college, wherever we find ourselves. And then would you work in our hearts so that our concern is not for ourselves, but for the lost and the least and the last. And would we then be able to model a real concern and a genuine love that a watching world is shocked by and struck by and attracted to? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.